0: Welcome to episode two of the What's Going On Your Head podcast, where we explore the secret inner workings of the mind through performance art and discussion, on stage, live streamed, and now through this podcast series. In this episode, you're going to meet John Salmon, another one of our producers. So John, tell us who you interviewed for this episode and why you wanted to interview him in particular.
1: I'm talking with Johnny Benjamin. He's a charity founder, mental health campaigner, author, filmmaker, one of the few men that I know that have been for years speaking openly about mental health.
0: At the age of 20, Johnny was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, a combination of schizophrenia and bipolar. One of Johnny's documentary films is called The Stranger on the Bridge.
1: Johnny was helped by somebody, um, a stranger, where he found himself on the bridge, contemplating whether to, to to take his life. And this stranger talked him down. He thought the person was called Mike, and there was a campaign that was done to find Mike. It turned out to be that it wasn't Mike; it was Neil.
0: But did he find Neil?
1: He did. You done a few of these, or you are my first, Johnny. <gasps> Am I really? Yeah, thank you for saying yes.
0: You meander through a whole host of topics during your conversation with Johnny, but you started in what I would call quite a soft place. And it's something I have to confess, I haven't thought about for a very, very long time, but it was something that affected me quite a lot when I was younger. Why did you start there?
1: Yeah, when I talked to Johnny and said, right, what performance piece um, do you want to include within the podcast? Johnny suggested a song that he had written with some housemates of his a few years ago, all about blushing. I was expecting Johnny to maybe come back with some other kind of more, maybe something a bit darker or something around the poetry that he's written. But, you know, as I kind of played back and listened to the song, it's got, it's just, there's some lovely lyrics in there about the, I guess, the embarrassment of what you feel if you find yourself in a situation where you go red and you're blushing and you kind of want probably want the world to kind of eat you up but the message of the song is that it's it's okay
0: shall we listen to it yeah let's give it a play
1: sometimes i blush it's okay really cares about it anyway
2: sometimes i blush it's okay, I really cares about it
1: anyway. It all happen one day, life was going my way till my face it blushed and my world was crushed. You no, know, I felt this fear for so many years, and nobody knows.
2: Sometimes I blush, it's okay, we really care about it anyway. Sometimes I blush,
1: it's okay, we really care about it anyway. It all happened today. I was blushing away, so I turned to run, but a voice itself. All this love around me I'm sure it'll be fine So the next steps Be up to you Be a good man Help the person in front of you Life is too short To do the same as others do So grab the opportunity And make your mama proud of you Night is always darkest Before the dawn So give yourself a break Make it to that yawn Every day's a new beginning a Chance to start that healing So I'll come on feet And those worries to start feeling Sometimes I blush
2: It's okay Who really cares about it anyway Blush. It's okay. Who really cares about it anyway.
1: Sometimes
2: I blush. It's okay. Who really cares about it anyway. How did that song come about? When I started talking about struggling with blushing, I was amazed at how many people said to me, oh my gosh, I also really struggle with blushing as well. It is such a source of embarrassment. And I know myself, when I blush, often other people will, will comment and, oh, he's blushing, which kind of <laughs> doesn't help the situation at all. I wanted to write a song that was reassuring for people, you know, that do struggle with blushing. That it's okay. I think it was, yeah, in my 20s that I started to, to struggle with this feeling of blushing. And I even had CBT for it at one point. It's something that I still struggle with. I feel like other parts of my mental health, I've learned to deal with better, but blushing is still something that I still haven't really got to grips with in terms of how it makes me feel and yeah, how embarrassed I get. I started songwriting when I was 16. That was my way of communicating with the world, what was going on in my head. I couldn't speak it. I wasn't, I don't know, I wasn't confident enough to start speaking my sort of truth so i had to write it instead and over the years i mean songwriting and poetry has been my sort of go-to when i'm when i'm in a bad place actually funnily enough the blushing song that we wrote is probably the only sort of positive thing that i've written in terms of you know songs poetry (laughs) most of my songs and poems are pretty dark i remember when i was in hospital the first time and i just wrote poem after poem after poem and there were a couple of nurses that really encouraged me to, to write to keep writing and they would read my poetry and yeah it helped them to understand what, what i was going through you know it took me years to really sort of properly you know vocally verbally communicate what was going on and even now there's certain things like the blushing that you know i still struggle maybe to talk about properly but when i write it down in a song or, or
1: poem it just it really helps me and then i i hope it helps other people why we release that song the support those nurses have given you to kind of encourage you to put pen to paper and to kind of get those thoughts from your head out. Is that is that usual? Personally, when I was in a hospital a long time ago um, in a men- mental health unit, to me at that time, it was very much about containment and c- control and very slowly trying to get me to a, a place where I was more things were more balanced but i wonder for me that if if something like that had been in place to express my feelings that would have, would have really helped me personally those types of initiatives is that happening within kind of hospital settings
2: not enough i don't think not enough for sure i mean i've been in hospital a few times and um i was actually uh, recently i was in hospital a few months ago during during COVID and that was really tough because like all the creative outlets I mean it was there was all the restrictions in the hospital and I've, I've been in that hospital before and when I was in that hospital before we did do there was a, an art one art session that we did and things like yoga actually we did a yoga session I remember once but obviously yeah because of COVID that was all stopped and that was really hard I find those creative sort of sessions in hospitals actually sometimes even more beneficial than the group therapy that we have to do in hospital. I was in hospital actually with with a a mix of patients. Some people were in there for, for addiction issues. The one time that they opened up the most was during the art sessions, when they were like making something or drawing something or painting something and all this stuff would come out. And I was just really amazed actually at the, wow, I guess that's the power of art. So many people often spend quite long periods in psychiatric units. Interestingly, so I've got a charity and on my youth boards um, there's this amazing young guy called Antonio, who was diagnosed with schizophrenia in hospital for two years. It was a long time. And so, you know, it's not uh, therapy, don't get me wrong, therapy, talking therapy, uh, you know, I'm all for it, absolutely. But those creative outlets are just as important. Sometimes it, for Antonio, you know, he's told me that yeah, music in particular has really, really helped him. So we need to give people the opportunity to have those creative outlets, particularly in hospital.
0: You shared your experiences of being in hospital in a mental health unit. Uh, yours was a long, long time ago. For Johnny, it was much more recently. I was curious to know what your experience was like when you were admitted.
1: It's in 1999, around kind of Christmas time. And yeah, it's still, it's, it's hard to know what's reality and what's, what I've made up in my mind that's happened. It's kind of, it's hard to kind of separate, yeah, the reality from memory, but I guess the overall feeling that I had was, it was not great. It was, um, it didn't, it didn't help me. And there could have been things that were done better to make my time there more, give me the right tools and the right, those early kind of steps to, to, to make me find a path to get better. Initially, it was all about just trying to figure out how to get out, whether that was breaking out or trying to work through the process to convince them that I was well enough to be let out. And... I was trying my hardest to get out of that hospital before christmas which i i did they they signed the papers they let me out if the color was in my mind is gray it was scary not a great space and it was a, it was a long time ago i i'm hopeful that things have improved I, i've been very lucky that yeah, I haven't found myself back in that, that, that situation, whereas obviously Johnny has um, been back into hospital yeah, a, a number of times. It was gen- generally just a, a pretty scary time where I felt very alone. And I think you know the, what, what drives me on now with work that we, we kind of do with what's going on in your head is we know how important music, art, performance is for your mental health and well-being.
0: And it's interesting because he talks about when he was recently there, because of COVID, all of that stuff had to stop. He felt that was a real gap. It seems like there was none of that when you were there.
1: No, the only the only thing that I remember being there was there was a trolley with plastic cups and very milky tea and um, with lots of sugar in it. And that was like the one kind of moment where like, you kind of came together you grab your cup of tea and it's, you know that kind of very you know basic kind of furniture, and I just remember yeah looking at different people, just fe- feeling that I shouldn't shouldn't have been there. Like I was like, oh look at them, they're they're, they're worse than me, or you know, or yeah, that I didn't fit. We all we all felt very very separate there, and it was very difficult to talk to other people that were in in the hospital as well. There was a couple of people, but I just think so much more could have been done around group exercises. But the the focus really was about, it was quite a regimented day of breakfast, lunch and dinner, different medication that you were being given, whether you knew what that medication was or not. Yeah, it was just, again, it was just really just almost like a holding pattern of planes really in the sky. I was able to to get out of that that system I did have problems you know once I did get out of hospital my mental health problems that I was suffering from I still had those I deteriorated worse out of hospital um, for a period of time they could have got it right if they'd got it right if it was the right environment my deterioration wouldn't have got worse and there is real improvements starting to happen it still doesn't get the funding or the attention that it really truly deserves in your first book the stranger on the bridge you you talk in detail about your mental health journey how it's impacted you personally you know even from a from a young age can you tell me a bit more about how your mental health has kind of changed over the years it was so tough growing
2: up struggling with both my mental health and then my sexuality on top um you know come from a jewish family and that was couldn't deal with either my sexuality or, or or my my mental health issues so it was very challenging it was horrible and then when i got my diagnosis at 20 when i had a breakdown i wish i could say that it made things better but it didn't it made things worse actually because of that particular diagnosis i think you know that schizoaffective disorder just felt really ashamed and embarrassed and I just thought I was going to be unwell forever. I really didn't see any, any hope, you know, I ran away from the hospital that I was in, I went to a bridge, thankfully talked talked off the edge by a stranger, thankfully. That was a bit of a turning point for me having that intervention, but it was still a long road to sort of recovery, recovery in inverted commas, you know. But I definitely get yeah, over the years, it's got it's easier, you know, to talk about it, to, to address it. I've got more insight. I've got amazing support. People like you, I mean, I'm so lucky. It makes such a difference having those people around you. And I think working in the space, I don't know about you, but working in the space, I feel just really lucky that I can, yeah, be open when I'm struggling. Because I, I, I still talk to people that say to me, I can't be open at work. And that breaks my heart. Even though I have relapses sometimes, I still feel in, in, in a much better place overall. I just feel more equipped to deal with my mental health now.
1: The diagnosis of schizoaffective disorder. Tell me a little bit more about <laughs> what that that is. That was a shock when I got that at the age of 20. I mean, I
2: knew I wasn't well, but when the psychiatrist said, oh, well, you know, you've got this particular diagnosis. Yeah, it was, it was, it was, it was I knew I was depressed, but the schizophrenia element of it was, yeah, it was a massive shock. I'd been psychotic. I'd gone through this horrible, I guess, episode. Felt like I was being kind of taken over. I thought by the devil, it felt like there was, well, yeah, it was horrible. And I ended up going onto a dual carriageway to just out of my mind, literally out of my mind. But I didn't know that was, I knew it was. I, I knew there was something wrong when I did that, but I didn't know it was psychosis or schizophrenia or an element of schizophrenia. So that was a big shock. Yeah, it was a big shock. And um, it was a big shock to me and to my family and to my friends as well, actually. And it took me a long time to come to terms with it. It just, again, going back to like shame and embarrassment, there was just so much shame and embarrassment around it. I just felt like I just couldn't talk about it for for so long. And I was so worried about what everyone would think of me.
0: So I was very interested in Johnny's response when you asked him how he felt when he was diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder. For some people, when they get a diagnosis, it can really help to finally be able to sort of put a label on, on what it is. But that wasn't the case for Johnny. Do you remember how you felt when you were diagnosed and first able to put a label on what was going on in your head?
1: When I was sectioned and, and put into hospital, I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. Right. So um, it was only, it's only since then that I still have the paperwork that has the typical doctor's scrawly handwriting that you struggle to read um, saying, psychotic episode brought on by acute stress and um from depression and probably related to work the biggest label that i i really struggled with was sectioned and saying that words there's a lot there's a lot of shame that it feels with having that label do you feel that Um, still now today Yeah, it's a word I use now. It's a word I say. I put it out there, you know, when talking about myself. I do mention it, but I mention it because I I hate that label. But also I know there's lots of other people that have been sectioned that probably feel the same as me that felt that, um, yeah, a bit like a prison sentence or like your ex-offender or something, that there's this, yeah, this negative label to it that is judging you on your past and not on your future and psychotic episode you know that's what does that mean you know that this person's just gone crazy or you know mad or um yeah I, yeah that, that was why i didn't speak openly about it was because i thought that if i did tell people these things they it would affect my career my friendships my whole life. So there was that's, that's why I kept it quiet for so many years because I, I, was, I was scared of what those labels would do to me. So, um, but I realize now that taking the power away from some of those labels and those words, if you the more you say them, the less power those words have.
0: One of the acts in one of our online shows we ran in 2020 was Giles Addison if you remember that, The Lost Show. And uh, he too has schizoaffective disorder. To be more precise, he's got bipolar schizoaffective disorder. And he spoke very eloquently through his performance and in the discussion that we had afterwards about what it feels like to have schizoaffective disorder. So I thought we would go back to that show um, and listen to what he said.
3: Loss. Feeling lost to the Machiavellian machinations of my own head. The ice-cold abyss of depression, which freezes to the core, until I feel nothing. Minutes lost in the hours, hours in the days, desperate to feel something. The crazed ecstasy of mania, which burns so bright, until I feel too, too much. Deluded choices with ramifications I'll only know later, when they arrive, as such. The ricochet of voices, with no corporal form, that haunt me hour upon hour, making the day and the night desperately lonely and so vitriolically sour. When I forget to remember that social engagement, the appointment, how to make tea, my executive functioning so buggered, it angers others despite my clemency P. Loss are the weeks in hospital, the zombie months of high medication not right for me. Loss are the times I fall victim to the full throes of my illness, yearning to be free. But through loss I have fought, myself I have taught a deeper understanding, and with it, compassion, in order to be free, or at least in a fashion. To aid myself, not in taming the beast, but keeping it on some kind of leash, at least. In loss, I have also gained. I can see more of you. I can see more of me, so that whilst we are cursed, we can see that we're blessed too you see. I am not bipolar. I am not disordered, just reordered. Nor am I schizo. Yes, I have bipolar schizoaffective disorder, but is that all of me? No. For the losses I've known, or will endure, I will find triumphs. Of that, I am sure.
0: That's an incredibly Good poem. Wow. It's an awful lot to unpack. Can you explain a bit more what bipolar schizoaffective disorder is?
3: Yeah, sure. So well, bipolar disorder, you have the, what what most people would think of, is that you suffer with the extremes of emotion. So you either um, are going through periods of depression or you're going through periods of mania or if not necessarily mania, then hypermania, which is a slightly sort of lesser down, but still kind of very crazed. Hypermania can be great if it's not, if you're not too, too hypermanic, it can be wonderful because you feel like on top of the world. But if you go out with your credit card, you'll, you know, you'll be suffering and crying the following day. Uh, Once I bought three pan sets in the same day. Why did I need three pan sets? I didn't even need one, but I once bought a big full-size deer at Christmas, you know, from a florist. I live in a studio. Um, And then on top of that, you have ultra-rapid cycling. So I can go through extremities of emotion very, very quickly. So I could get, I I could have an explosion of anger. Then 10 minutes later, I can be laughing. And then five minutes later, I'm crying. And that's quite exhausting. So I go through that as well. It also affects your executive functioning. So, I mean, I always laugh about it now, but there was one time when I forgot how to make a cup of tea. And it was really embarrassing because there were people in the room. And I know this sounds ridiculous, but. I couldn't figure out whether the milk went in first or the hot water. When did the tea bag go in? What about the sugar? How did I stir it? My synapses just wouldn't connect. To finish in summing up then, um, skit's effective because I also have that aspect to my bipolar disorder, which is that I suffer from um, auditory hallucination. I can have visual hallucinations as well, but generally it's it's, uh, auditory that I get. And they're, they're very, it's like, imagine if you went out with your best friend into the park and you said, oh, look at that green grass. And your friend turned around and said, well, grass isn't green, it's blue. And then you said, oh, look at the the, the yellow sun. And they said, well, the, the sun's not yellow, it's purple. And and then you said, oh, can you hear those church bells? And your friend turns around and you said, there aren't no church bells. There's no church. You're then stuck in a dilemma. Do you trust what you instinctively know is real, that your senses are telling you is real? Or do you just ignore all what your senses are saying and listen to what your best friend is saying because you trust them implicitly? And that's kind of what having auditory or or visual hallucination is like, because because it seems so absolutely real to you that if somebody somebody says, well, it's not it's not or tries to pacify you, whatever it is, because I can hear it as well as I can hear your voice
0: one of the many elements of loss in your poem that I sort of pulled out was this this loss of time um while on medication while in hospital uh,
3: yeah I mean I take I take medication now and generally speaking my regime of medication is is working well for me Um it doesn't stupefy me too much but a few years back um I was put on um, medication which was incredibly high level of medication and I was I was um, I'd say I, I lost two or three years of my life. Really. I was a zombie. You know, my sisters would break down in tears whenever they saw me. It was the wrong medication. and It was far too high. And I, I lost a long time, but I've I really push for people who have mental health illness to learn as much as they can about what they have, which is what I do. I read a lot of books and websites and things like that, learn about the medications. So I go to the psychiatrist and I talk to the psychiatrist and I said, well, this isn't working for me, doctor. I would like to try this medication, please. And we'll try that one. And I, as best as I can, I lead my medical team into the help that they give me. As I put in the poem, you don't, control the beast, but you put it on a leash.
1: When was the first time that you spoke publicly about your mental health? Can you remember that first time where that shame and that stigma that you, you mentioned there that you, you had felt around everything that had happened? Do you remember what that moment was?
2: I remember the very first talk that I gave, oh gosh, years ago now, first time I stood up and actually publicly talked about it I was so nervous I mean I don't know if you remember your first time but oh my word like my heart was beating so hard and so loud and my throat and my words were coming out like I don't know my voice was quivering I remember it was so scary but by the end of it though and, and the response that I got it was worth it and yeah it felt kind of liberating you know to, to finally talk about
1: it. What would you say to somebody listening to this that wanted to kind of share their story? People should be patient with themselves.
2: You know, I speak to a lot of people that say, Oh, I should be talking out like you, I should be, but I'm, I can't. And, you know, it's okay. Like, it, you know, for me, it took years to start properly speaking. It was definitely writing that helped me to give me the confidence to start speaking. You know, I kept a journal every day. Um, writing down my thoughts, my feelings, and it just helped to, to make everything a bit more sort of eloquent. The things that go through your mind after you expose yourself, it's, it's, it's too much to do it alone. So, you know, if you are speaking
1: out, then, then have like a supportive group of people. When you're, you're motivated to share your story, it could just to be to one other person. It could be to a group of people. The, the impact that you can have on somebody else by even sharing a little bit Can go a long way, and then there's sometimes I can think, "Wow, we're making such progress here," and then all it takes is one conversation with somebody a bit left or right of that bubble to realise that we've still got a long way
2: to go. I remember uh, went to talk at a Samaritans conference. The journey being a nightmare, I remember actually, and I just I I just wanted to get there and get started. Anyway, I, I got to the station. I got in a taxi and the taxi driver said, where are you going? I said, oh, Samaritan's conference. He said, oh, don't get me started on suicide. So selfish. I was like, oh my word, I really don't need this conversation. And it just made me feel, I mean, we, you know, it was such a difficult conversation. I tried to talk to him about it. He wouldn't listen. By the time I got to the Samaritan's conference, I was like, oh, I've just, I've had enough. I just want to go home already. But then as soon as I walked into the conference and surrounded by, you know, all those kind of really kind you know, understanding, empathetic people that were on the same page as me. It just, I don't know, it just changed everything. So yeah, I feel very fortunate that we live in a time and a place where we have that community around us.
0: You asked Johnny about how he felt when he first started talking publicly about mental health. You've done that too. How how did you get the nerve up to do it?
1: Anger. I sadly lost a friend who, unbeknown to me, had real bad postnatal depression with her second child. Yeah, in 2016, she very, very sadly took her life. And for me, that that made me so angry that she wasn't able to get the right help. We kind of talk about, yeah, when I was ill, that like, oh, well, 20 years ago, of course, things were a lot worse. People like Johnny, and Professor Green and Stephen Fry, some some key kind of men had come on my radar that were talking about mental health. Up until that point, I deliberately had not engaged with that kind of conversation or anything to do with with mental health specifically. I, I, I would give money every month to a mental health charity, but that was that was far from it. But when losing somebody close to me, and knowing that they could still be here today if they'd got the right kind of help made me really angry I've learned a lot since by sharing my story publicly at least I was coming hopefully from a place of strength I knew that you know that I was hopefully strong enough if I shared my story that I was doing it for the right reasons and my mental health and my well-being I was in a position where I felt strong enough to do it One question that we we ask in our podcast um, of everybody that takes part, and that is, if you could take a magic pill to get rid of the mental health issues that you've experienced over the years, would you, would you take that pill? I know this is a bit of a cop out,
2: but honestly, I, I I think my answer depends on you know the state of mind that I'm in. If I'm if I'm having a relapse, I'd probably say. Give me that pill, you know what I mean. But sitting here today, you know, I'm in quite a good place. Touch words for now. So I'd say no, I don't want. I don't want that pill because. And I think ultimately, no, I wouldn't take the pill actually, because uh, well, I wouldn't be sitting here today <laughs> talking to you. You know, we've done lots of work together. Doing all the work that we've done, it's it's been um, yeah, it's been amazing. I feel and I do. I, I mentioned the word lucky. I feel so lucky, you know, to be part of this community. That we're part of and i wouldn't be part of that community if i hadn't have gone through what i went through so it's hard at times of course but ultimately you know when i again when i speak to people that tell me they, they can't be open they, they have to hide their, their mental struggles away i just feel so so fortunate that i can be open so yeah i and no i wouldn't i wouldn't take it
1: thank you johnny benjamin for your time today what fascinating conversation i really could just talk to you for hours
0: were you surprised by johnny's answer to your magic pill question
1: i was i wasn't i wasn't surprised because you know it's it's a strange question to be asking right so kind of to ask that question um i felt slightly awkward you know the reason why johnny said no, and I think this really reflects on his character, is I really hope he does know how many people he has helped. If he hadn't have had these experiences, yeah, he wouldn't have helped people like myself.
0: Actually, I was listening to a podcast by David Runciman earlier today, and he was talking about, you know, if we could sort of plug ourselves into a machine or take a happy pill, you know, would we want to to do that when things are pretty tough? And a lot of us probably wouldn't because that sort of takes away what it means to be human and, and your own identity and who you are. And I think that's often why we get a surprising answer to to the magic pill question that, that we always ask people.
1: Just you talking about that, there's a great music video and track by Blur called The Universal, and it was released around the time of, I guess, Prozac. It's great music videos almost utopia you know everybody's kind of a dulled happiness and um
0: and that's also what aldous huxley talks about in in brave new world all those years ago you know you have the pill i can't remember what it's called in the book that that you can take to keep you happy but ultimately nobody's really that happy even though they're in happy land
1: it's a lot about acceptance If you have a kinder society and take away some of the stigma from you know schooling is all about getting certain grades and performing and this being a certain jigsaw piece that fits in actually a world where the jigsaw pieces don't fit in is is probably a more is a more interesting place
0: I'd like to say a big thank you to Johnny Benjamin. If you would like to find out more about him and his work, head over to his website at johnnybenjamin.co.uk. On his website, you'll also find information about his charity, Beyond. They would love support to reach more schools and colleges. I would also like to thank Giles Addison for letting us use that clip from our show themed around loss. Giles is going to be performing some more of his work at one of our upcoming live shows in London. So if you'd like to come to any of our live shows or watch the live stream, you can find out more about that on our website, what'sgoingonyourhead.org. There's also a page on our website where we list charities and organisations where you can find mental health support. If you're enjoying this podcast, please like and review it to help more people find it. If you're a musician, comedian, dancer, or spoken word artist with lived experience of mental illness and would like to perform at one of our shows or be a part of this podcast, please do reach out to us via the contact form on our website. Finally, I'd like to thank Kim Halliday, our resident musician and podcast editor, for all of his work in pulling these episodes together. In our next episode, we'll be hearing from another member of the What's Going On Your Head team, Rupert Isles, who takes us on a fascinating philosophical journey in his discussion with John Downs about the role our physiology plays in how the mind works.